Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the show today. I'm welcoming Kimothy Cole to the podcast. Kimothy is a community artist working with the ritual and gathering as tools for radical change. Their work prioritizes the creation of shared culture through a decolonizing lens. Cole is an accomplished visual, musical, and performance artist, bringing immersive experiences into mundane spaces. Their performance and ritual work has been featured in festivals, events, and venues across the U.S., They have certificates in embodied healing and movement chaplaincy, and their first book, A Liturgy for All Bodies, New Words for a New World, is being released by Cyclical Publishing in early 2023. All right, welcome to the show, Timothy Cole. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, What else would you like our listeners to know about you? I do online classes from time to time, and so if you'd like to stay connected to me through my website or through my Patreon, you can do that and get updates about future classes or events that are happening online. Great, great. Well, thanks again for being here. Share, if you would, kind of about your journey of faith, what that looks like, what that looked like in the past, and what that looks like today. Yeah, uh, so I grew up as the child of a Church of Christ preacher in Mm -hmm. the Midwest, and Mm -hmm. then later in Texas. And uh, that's a really particular culture, uh, church culture. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, particulars around how they do worship and who's included in leadership that, um, that shaped my faith process for a long time. And when I was in high school and really started having more friends who were um, not Christian and, or that were, um, queer folks that were exploring their sexuality and their gender, I started to take, put my own hands on my faith and, and ask difficult questions and go looking for answers in lots of different places mm-hmm. um, and continued to stay in the church of Christ until I was um, in college. I finally left there, but, but really that began this process of me asking these difficult questions and going in search of God in different places and I think there was a, a time in particular where I, maybe in my late 20s, where I just made the decision that if people said that they were experiencing God somewhere, then I was going to go and check it out if it was mm-hmm. open to me. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's not not all spaces where people encounter God are open to all people, but if they yeah. were open, I wanted to check it out and, and see it for myself. Um, because it felt like the more that I explored some of those places— and found the spirit of God there and really f- explored different facets of uh, the the character of God, the expression of God, the, the existence of God. Um, so many of the things that I was told when I was younger that were bad or satanic or evil or yeah. uh, were going to get in the way of my relationship actually brought me so much deeper into relationship with God. Yeah. And a lot of the things that were ignored completely, like the natural world or my mm-hmm. own body, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking at those and, and, and starting to see my, my role as one of many, um, creations, 
mm-hmm. that fit within an ecosystem um, that really started to shift that. And so at this point, I my my faith practice is much more rooted in the cycles of the sun, the cycles of the moon, the ways that the that creator manifests themselves in all of creation, and and in particular my piece, my part in the ecosystem of this creation where I find myself and. And so it's like, as I get deeper into my relationship with God as creator, and then into creation as my kin, um, my my faith becomes rooted in that particular framework and in that particular lens. And so everything sort of has to fit within, does this make sense in, in alignment with how the trees move? Does it make sense in alignment with how mushrooms grow? You know, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't, then, then I, then there has to be, a, for me, there's a real challenge there. Around, mm-hmm. You know, is this really God or is this dogma and tradition and, and dogma and tradition are not inherently bad, but I think it's helpful for us to be able to separate those two out and say, these are things that we believe, but they're not necessarily things that we can say conclusively are true about the nature of God. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and it kind of in that similar vein, what are some spiritual practices that have been meaningful for you? Time outside in the water. In the Mm -hmm. last, I would say, five years in particular, I started to use my time at the water as prayer time and to use the time um, to learn about how I fit into the ecosystem and, and to just share and to cry and, you know, to be able to cry and then to go underwater and sort of feel the water, uh, mix with your own tears there's just something really powerful about that that just feels like you're kind of being held by god and by spirit (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a really big one for me it's just getting out into the natural world um and then i think also i'm i'm a big proponent of smallness and slowness i think so much of our culture the ways in which we disconnect from god are either trying to make things bigger than they need to be or want to be or making things faster than they need to be or want to be and that oftentimes when we come back to smallness and slowness we 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 start to find the you know the rhythm of a rock the rhythm of a of a of a you know a snail mm-hmm. you know those those things can be really helpful for for understanding the pieces of god that are not just sort of the image of god of you know kind of snap your fingers and the whole universe appears but actually seeing the ways in which god has taken billions of years to flesh these things out is um to me is really meaningful yeah, I'm curious if I can ask you, I think something that's related. I was reading this week about whether or not the daylight savings time thing is going to be implemented, which I'm still confused about whether that's going to happen or not. And I don't even remember what it means entirely. But I was thinking about the article was actually like a um, against this idea of like pushing back time permanently, mm. which if I'm getting it right um, – because it's arguing like in some communities, again, kind of depending on where the time zones fall, like sunrise wouldn't happen until like 9, 9.30, which is pretty late, as one can imagine, in the morning, beginning up. And it, of course, talked about the potential negative side effects of lack of sun in the morning. And I was thinking about most of the arguments, uh, it seems like every time fallback happens against the fallback is all about, oh, people driving and more accidents and on and on and on about these negative health consequences of early sunset. And I I thought like, boy, isn't really the solution just like to not um, 
manufacture time and just to go along more with the rhythms of like nature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you get, there are so many ways in which our whole culture is built around us, not just being with the seasons and being with the sun and being with the Mm -hmm. moon and the way that things move. And, and there's like, I, I think especially in the church growing up, there was such a disconnect around even things like, you know, well, the the moon doesn't affect us. You know, like, mm-hmm. The moon affects the ocean. You think you're more powerful than the ocean? You're <laughs> filled with salt water. Like, you know, there are just these ways in which you look at how God is so intentional about building um, this, this elaborate web, this elaborate network uh, mm-hmm. of connectivity, and that that's what makes things thrive, and it's what helps them grow and to evolve. Um, and human beings kind of come along and we go like, we're doing it this way. It doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know, where you live or, you know, we're going to have 300 million people, everybody from Northern Alaska to Southern Florida are, are all going to function in the same sort of convoluted idea of time that we then all have to accommodate in order to make our jobs work. And there's just this way in which it feels like we've, we've built an entire culture to exist out of alignment with God. And then we sort of look around each other and go, wait, why is the planet dying? Why are we so miserable? Mm-hmm. And it just, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I could go on about this forever because it's it feels very important to me. But but uh, yeah, I'll well, there. Uh, I appreciate your thoughts on that for sure. Unfortunately, we are here to talk about your forthcoming book, A Liturgy for All Bodies, and uh, share if you would. Um, I guess I, I didn't give you this in advance, but I'm always curious from authors like to hear like kind of what what inspired the book, like why you're like this needs to be a book. Yeah. Um, you know, for years I have been in spaces where I would be in churches and oftentimes would end up in churches that had a a decent amount of money, you know, um, Mm -hmm. not necessarily wealthy churches, but, um, enough, enough money that they owned a building, right. That they had several staff members, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and you would, I would sit in worship services and oftentimes, I mean, I'm, I've, a large part of my adult life and through my twenties, I was working as a professional artist. That's how I was making my money. So I was paycheck to paycheck and I was Mm -hmm. stretching everything thin and I would walk in and I would sit down and, and we would read liturgy about like how, how we need to help the poor and how this is what Jesus is calling us to help the poor. And just having this moment of like, do y'all not see that I'm here? I'm right here. Mm. Like I'm the poor, but we don't have, but we haven't built a community of relationships so that you can actually be present in that with me and, and work with me and help me. And that there are probably lots of ways in which if we had really been in each other's lives, um, that might not have been the case, right? There could have been a hundred different ways in which, in which that could have been met outside of just saying, we're going to give you money. Mm -hmm. Um, but that like deep relationship and mutual aid is not the same thing as charity. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, there always felt like there was this piece of that. And then as I came out as non-binary and I would be in spaces and it was brothers and sisters and, you mm-hmm. know, the, the daughters and sons of God and right. All of this kind of binary mm-hmm. language. And this question again of like, do y'all not see me? Like, am I invisible here? Um, I, I, I don't know how we, how I keep walking into this space and being really clear about who I am and, and yet still our language in no way, shape or form includes me. Um, you know, an, another one, one of my closest friends, childhood friends, um, is deaf, right? And you walk mm. into how many Christian spaces that use deaf as a synonym for 
um, unable to perceive, unable to, to, to make connection, un- unable to take in information effectively. Mm-hmm. And, and so in this way, it's like, but I look at my friend who's deaf and I'm like, that person is incredible perceiving things, you know, like mm-hmm. they're doing mm-hmm. linguistic research on a, you know, PhD level. Like this is not somebody, deafness is not a thing that keeps my friend from taking in information or sharing information. And yet we continue to use that language. And because of that, we don't see people in their entirety. We don't see what they bring to the table, what they bring to, to our communities. And so, yeah. you know, for years I've seen that and I've been writing my own liturgies and trying to share things um, because I do ritual work and rituals, the focus of, of my artistic work at this point. And, um, and so then I went to, um, when I met Brendan McClanahan, who works with cyclical publishing, mm-hmm. um, I, at one point just shared this idea with him and said, you know, I think, I think that if we're really going to take seriously the idea, you know, if, if our language is really going to be reflective of who's coming into the church, which I would think we would want, yeah. right. That we would, that we would want our churches to be spaces where people walk in and they see themselves reflected right. in every area. Um, that, that that's going to have to include the language and that language is one of the first ways that we really start to shift our frameworks on things, um, whether that's spiritual or academic or emotional or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so brought this idea to him and said, you know, what if we, what if instead of, you know, just being one person or another person, what if we put together a whole cohort of people mm-hmm. who are exactly the kinds of people that are missing from these hymnals and books of liturgy that are out there um, people who are, you know, deeply embedded in spiritual practice, in theology, in in community leadership, um, and who also have existed on the fringes of the Christian Church, the institutional Christian Church, for so long, mm-hmm. for so many different reasons. I mean, like, you know, just right off the bat, it's like, how many times when you're writing a book of liturgy are you going to go to people that aren't ordained? Yeah, You know, how many, you know, like there are just some really basic kind of gatekeeping ways in which we don't hear from people because we say, well, it's the people that have done X, Y, and Z, they're the ones we need to be listening to. Right, right. Um, and, and really not even considering the fact that there are people out there that are absolutely doing incredible spiritual work and have made the choice to not do that through a traditional ordination process. Um, and, and so there's there's this wealth of knowledge and spiritual gifting that we just don't have access to and so really so much of this was just i'm i'm a big believer that 9 times out of 10 if people are not doing something that fits in their value systems it's because they don't have the appropriate tool hmm. and so for me if i if i'm seeing consistently that people are saying we want to make this change and yet the change is not happening on a wide scale level i go okay what's the tool what's yeah, the tool that's yeah. missing um, and so this feels like my, well, not just mine. I mean, there's there's a whole cohort of writers on this, but that at least um, some part of my effort to to kind of try to create the tool that people can use to to move in this direction. Yeah, I like that uh, metaphor. I guess that language of providing tools to help people make change. Sorry, I'm scratching down that note here. <laughs> um, you know. I think in my own, I'll try not to be too specific here, but in my own family context, I'll say, you know, I think of um, those whom I love um, wanting to be better in their relationships and not have, that's the word I've thought about, like 
the, their faith context just don't provide them the tools to really be better. So I think that's a helpful, that's helpful language. Um, speaking of language, I was going to ask, and you were kind of providing some concrete examples there in your, in your first, in your first part there about like some of the ways that liturgies exclude. You mentioned, um, what, uh, A-list language, right? With like the word deaf, um, I think you named something else. What are some more common examples that you see? Um, you know, deaf alongside deaf is um, a word that I just kind of generally, we, we tend to use the word lame a lot in the mm-hmm. church, which is, um, yeah. I don't, I don't know anybody who has, who has difficulty walking that wants to be described that way. And yet yeah. we continue to use that language. We continue to use the language of blindness in a similar way that we do deafness. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm, you know, I think when we do things like communion, we focus so much on financial gifts that we really miss an opportunity every week to let people present gifts that are not financial, and hmm. to be intentional about what those gifts are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we will we talk a lot about victory, victory language, and military yeah. language is yeah. really prevalent. And yeah. I, you know, I, I'm I'm going to speak as somebody who has never been in the midst of a violent conflict, but generally speaking, like. The idea of God as this sort of conqueror summons up for me a lot of images of colonization and violent takeover, um, which yeah. doesn't doesn't feel familiar to me in my experience with God. Um, so I think there's there's things like that. There was another one I was just thinking of. Um, now I've probably forgotten it. Um, yeah, I just I think that there are these ways in which we we have you know, father language, naming mm-hmm. God as the father exclusively. And I think there's something about like, I'm really intrigued by the idea of worshiping a God that has no name because there are so many traditions that where God really has a name hmm. and in the Judeo-Christian tradition, God doesn't really have a name. Yeah. Um, and instead God is only named through relationship. And so our relationship to God, naming, naming God as father over and over and over again, without the compliments of mother, parent, creator, friend, ally. I mean, there's just, there's so many different ways that God is discussed and so many different ways that we experience God in a relational level. Um, but yet in our liturgy, more often than not, it becomes parental and it largely becomes either mother or father. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, yeah, I mean, even things like using singular pronouns for God versus I, I'm a, I am a big believer in that they, them pronouns for God because we hmm. We name a God that is both singular and plural at the same yeah. time, yeah. but then we don't utilize the pronouns that we have in our language that actually allow us to refer to God that way. So it's like, it's not necessarily these huge things of like, well, this is sinful or this is evil. I think some of them are. I think that when we, I think we continue to use offensive ableist language, especially mm-hmm. in the, in, um, in the church, I think that there's something about that that's like we need to step back and really try to step back into alignment with God and how God talks about people, sure, um, whose bodies work in different ways. But I think even there's just a on things like the pronouns where we can just expand our brains a little bit and tease that out and really yeah. embrace this sort of wild God that has never desired to to exist in our names and in our boxes. And to just kind of let God continue to be this sort of wild, malleable thing that we're really only catching glimpses of anyway. And so let's let's celebrate all the different glimpses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. 
Um, it seems like pronouns are once again, like as we're recording this once again, like a hot button issue for folks. And maybe I'm being too, um, too innocent. I can't think of the word too, um, simplistic in my thinking. I just don't understand why it's such a big deal to like call people how they want to be called. Um, Agreed. Is it, you know, is there more to it? I mean, I'm sure there's, what do you think? You know, I think that there's, I think it's difficult. I think changing language is difficult. It's just always going to be hard to change from something, especially the longer you do it. You know, the longer you do it, the harder it's going to be. And I'll say like, I am a non-binary person. And before I came out and even after I came out, Mm -hmm. I practiced on my dog um, because I knew that I needed practice and I didn't have anywhere else to practice. And so (laughs) I just started practicing. What if I just never use gendered language or pronouns with my dog at all (laughs) and noticed how many times I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like I keep wanting to, Mm -hmm. I keep wanting to go in one direction or another. And so it's like, it, it does take practice. It's not a thing that you just sort of go, Oh, well, now that you've explained it to me, I'll never make that mistake again. It's, yeah, and, yeah. But also, it's the reason why we have to practice, right? That like yeah. our, we can't expect our minds and our bodies to make that shift without doing the work to practice it. And, and so it's also, it doesn't feel like a good solution to just kind of avoid it either. Yeah. Because then we just, it just goes on longer and longer and we kick the can down the road. That's good. I appreciate that. That's helpful. Um, Related to this conversation, as I was preparing for this interview, I kept thinking about, and I've heard this from other conversations and other podcasts around this kind of um, including all bodies topic, is the idea of um, church spaces and church architecture. And I can't remember where I heard this. Maybe it was on the Bible for Normal People. I think they did an interview where they talked about, they had a guest where it talked about how like churches really fought against the ADA laws. I, I can't remember when that was like in the eighties or nineties. Um, so obviously that's, that's an important part of the conversation. Um, but they highlighted just like simple things like um, the stage or chancel, whatever terminology that uh, uh, churches or, or faith communities use for that kind of central area. Uh, what are some other examples of I guess what's your thought around this whole topic and and what are some other examples of the way you see churches exclude through architecture or spaces? You know, generally speaking, I'm not a big fan of we all face the same direction and someone stands in front of us. Hmm. Practically, it makes a lot of sense to do it that way. Um, But I think you always end up with kind of the people at the front, the people at the back. You end up with different kinds of distance. You end up with a dynamic where um, certain people that are important are sort of elevated and given the mic Mm -hmm. and the rest of us just sort of sit here and watch and maybe copy, you know, copy or repeat or read some things. Um, So like, I'm always a fan of doing it, you know, people on three sides or people all the way in the round and have seen churches that do that. And you do end up with like, you can't have 15 rows deep that way. You know, maybe you can have four or five, but people are closer. Yeah, it's a more um, intimate gathering. Yeah, you can't focus all the attention in one direction. You have to kind of keep it moving. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one. I think that um, even things like, you know, how are the 
the children's areas played out. Mm-hmm. You know, like we end up a lot of times with children's areas that are not accessible to kids or, um, you know, things like organs um, are not necessarily architecture, but like that kind of huge instrument that makes so much noise. Mm-hmm. And that oftentimes then becomes this thing of like, well, now we've got it. We spent all this money on it. We need to keep using it. Yeah. Yeah. But that isn't necessarily accessible. And so then finding ways of, um, of either being really clear with people that that's something that's going to be a part of things or, or, you know, doing multiple services or having quiet rooms, or there's lots of ways to kind of make these things accessible, but most of our old architecture is not trying to do that. Right. And I mean, I can understand the impulse to say, you know, this is a historic building, Mm -hmm. X, Y, Z. Um, but one of the things that really comes up for me on that, that, um, when I was, I, I attended the Living Games Conference, which is a conference for people that do live action role playing. Hmm. And one of the things that they talked about really explicitly over and over and over again was the game is not more important than the players. Hmm. And I think about the, you know, Jesus saying explicitly, you know, the Sabbath was made for you, not the other way around. Like this isn't, this is this is about creating something that meets you where you're at, not about teaching you how to fit into um, into these buildings and traditions. And so I think there just becomes this question for me of if there's not a way to make your building accessible, is it time to really consider? Is it still serving the community for you to stay in a building that can't be accessed by the people? that you explicitly say you want to serve. Yeah. Um, you know, at what point do we sort of have the moment for, I'll take it, I'll take it one step further. When, when, at one point do we start having the conversations, especially among the institutions of you know, the land being returned to indigenous people that it was stolen from, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes not even that far off from when the church acquired it in yeah. some cases. Yeah. Um, and, and really saying like, we've held on to these buildings that oftentimes sit empty all but a few hours every week. Right. You know, and and that don't serve the community that we're trying to serve and that continue to keep land and power in the hands of the people who are not the rightful stewards of it, right? Like there's gotta be this question, I think, of of whether our, our buildings are still serving us. And in some cases they are. I think that that is true. I don't think it's just one or the other, but Yeah. Um what do you th- what do you think it means to create spaces where all are included then? Hmm. I would say that it's impossible to create a space where all are included. And I would, and I would, I think that it's important for that to be clear because I have in many cases had people say, Oh, well, you know, this isn't accessible because we're doing it at night and some people work at night. And then you go, yeah, but if you do it during the day, it's not accessible to those people. Or, you know, if you decide you're going to do it in English and in Spanish, well, what happens to the refugees who speak Farsi? Yeah. Okay. So then you bring in Farsi. Okay. Well, what happens? You know, you look at a a place like Austin and there's so many languages spoken. There's so many Mm -hmm. people from so many different cultures who understand even just the concept of sacred text in really different ways or that have, you know, one person is on the autism spectrum and needs a lot of stimulus. And one person's on the autism spectrum and can't deal with overwhelming stimulus. Right. You know, so even within the same community, you have different needs. Right. And so there is this, for me, there's less of a question of like, how do we make it accessible to all people? And like, who are the people that are specifically in our community that we're here to serve? Mm. You know, so it's like, 
you've got, you know, Austin, Texas, I just moved there uh, to Richmond from Austin. Um, so Austin, Texas has one of the largest deaf populations in the United States. It's like one of the top five concentrations of deaf uh, and hard of hearing people. And there are so few churches that are offering ASL interpretation. Yeah, And so it's like, to me, that's a really clear example of like, we have like a specific group of people that are part of our community whose Mm -hmm. needs are not being met versus saying like, well, there are people somewhere in the world who speak X language. And so we're going to have a whole service in that. And it's like, yeah, but are, or is is that a, is that a population that's close to you right like like what is the reason why you feel like you want to connect in these specific ways yeah. and so i think it and and part of that for me also feels like there's a it's easy to sort of say like here's the solutions and here's how we do this but mm-hmm. really it's all relationships and yeah. it's a constant process as soon as you find something that works someone new is going to walk in that building mm-hmm. and there might be some small tweak that needs to happen right this is a constantly evolving thing even Within our own bodies, what I need today is not the same thing I needed ten years ago. Yeah, and if I was part of the same community, I would have different needs from them. Uh, and so I think it's 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 much more about how do we meet who is in our community, who wants to be in this community, who wants to build this community, and then how do we create for those folks? Yeah, I think that's a really helpful um, guideline, if if that's a fair word to say. The knowing who are, knowing who are the people in our community to serve, and like you say, through a relationship, um, because I can, again, like you you like you mentioned, trying to be all things to all people is going to be really hard, um, frankly impossible. I can imagine, or like you said, you said impossible to include all. Um, what are the ways? Do you have any stories or or examples of ways you've seen churches or community faith like do this really well? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think about the open table in Kansas city, um, who have visited a few times and, you know, there's things like they meet on the ground floor, which, you know, is pretty typical for a church, Mm -hmm. um, but means that, that you don't have people trying to navigate elevators and stairs getting up and down. And they Mm -hmm. have, um, space that's set aside for the kids to play. And, uh, and so the kids can have, their space to express the way that they need to. And then there's, you know, there's food, but there's both the food that they make that oftentimes there's different options for gluten-free or vegan or vegetarian, but there's also space for people to bring their own food. And so you get this kind of potluck and you can eat off of those things mm-hmm. or, um, you know, having um, sitting people in tables so that it becomes more relationally focused rather than us just all facing the front yeah. and putting all of the, the you know, the emphasis on the person standing at the front. You know, so that's like, that's one example, one community that I think has, has done some really interesting things to try to meet different needs in different ways. Um, I, I think, you know, this is not a, a church, but I think, you know, the, the Living Games Conference that I referenced was really great. Yeah. They had made all of their bathrooms were, all of the bathrooms were, were gender neutral. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't some of those difficulties. Um, there was a lot of... Um, culture in that community around how do we have indicators so that if there's an issue, we have a quick way of addressing them and we have a clear um, vocabulary for how we want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think of, 
you know, there are churches that are doing really amazing things. I think especially in, in um, queer and refugee communities where they're bringing in multiple languages in the same service, which mm-hmm. is really incredible. Um, or where there's, you know, there's a Sunday morning service that maybe is specifically Christian, but then a large part of what they do through the week includes people that don't necessarily share the same theological or faith practice, but are just as involved in the community. And so Mm -hmm. you even see people that are sort of saying like, they're almost embracing a kind of like, um, like philosophical Christianity rather than a, um, like a spiritual or, or divine Christianity. So I think, um, there have been some really interesting, um, yeah, and I, I'm I'm trying to think of others, but I think there's I think there's just there are lots of churches that I see. Um, there's one church in San Antonio that is about to turn this empty plot of land across from their church into a neighborhood park, hmm. where they have a food truck parked there, and they're going to do events, and yeah. they're going to specifically use that outdoor space as a way of connecting to the community on the community's terms, rather than trying to get them to come inside of the church building. Right. Right. So I. I yeah, I think there are lots of churches that are being really creative with with how they want to connect and and really rethinking their their spaces and and how much of what they're doing really needs to happen in a in a specific space. Yeah, I appreciate those examples. If I'm hearing it right, I'm, I'm really hearing like a an ethos again going back to what you said around what are the needs in our community? How can we meet those needs? Both I can imagine within our quote unquote church community and then outside the walls of our you know within our geographical community, right? Yeah. And I think that geographic piece feels re- that geographic piece feels really important to me and it's something hmm. that I've been playing with in the last few years specifically because we uh, as our cities get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, it's easy for us to kind of create communities that are spread really thin across a city. Yeah. And I think that there's a way in which that that makes it really difficult for us to just dig in and be present with each other. Because if it's a 30 minute drive from my house to your house and it's five o'clock and I just picked my kids up, it's unlikely that we are going to be doing dinner together on a regular basis. (laughs) But you know, like I grew up, we lived in parish houses some of the time that I was growing up and it's like, you know, you just walk across the street, you have people that are close by, everybody's within a couple miles of each other in a smaller town setting. Um, And you can see the ways in which that just, um, that that really amplifies and it grows and it spreads and you have you can have more community events that aren't even necessarily just about bringing people in to be a part of the church but just being present having fun because your your people live there. Um, I'm not going to remember the name of the church now, but I think about the um, the Michael Mathers book. Um, uh, oh, having nothing, possessing everything. Hmm. And they talk a lot about how they do really like kind of hyper local focused work mm-hmm. and how that has grown their relationships and grown the community. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for sharing that. Um, two more questions I want to ask you here. Um, one is like, what kind of advice would you give for a, a pastor or church leader trying to navigate uh, these conversations, which again, I can imagine can be difficult in some time, in some context where it's like, Hey, we need to, you know, I, we should change the language we use around, around God. Um, we should use a more inclusive language. We should, we should, we should consider like accessibility and, and investing some money there. Uh, what kind of advice do you have for pastors and church leaders there? 
I would say don't start there. Hmm. Start with being in a regular practice of death and resurrection with your church Mm. so that we are constantly, you know, repeatedly over and over and over again, getting this message that a thing existing and being beautiful doesn't mean it never dies. Yeah. And that just because something was beautiful 10 years ago, doesn't mean that it still needs to be alive. Yeah. And if we can start to practice this idea that, we are not meant to be permanent. Our systems are not meant to be permanent. Our mm-hmm. ideas, our aesthetics, our traditions, these are not permanent. None of us are practicing the exact traditions that our ancestors of, you know, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago are practicing because we're in different contexts. We're coming from different places. We have different fabrics we can use in the clothing, right? Like all of these things have shifted and changed. And so even in places where you have a really strong folk art, folk process to, to pass things on, things are, are are malleable. They have to be alive because, again, it's like these rituals, these traditions are not about the tradition and the ritual. You know, us serving that, it's about the other way around, us being able to meet God there. And if our our language and our traditions are getting in the way of that, then we need to let those things go. We need to let those things die. But we can't just say, hey, you know this thing that you care deeply about that's been a central part of your faith practice for decades? We're getting rid of it because it's bad, <laughs> right? Like, it's like the first step is just like, yeah. you know what? What's a thing What's a thing that we can look at right now and yeah. we can let die? And that, you know, that we can celebrate its life. Like, how do we just start practicing mm-hmm. that? Because I think then we start to get to this place of going, you know, I, I, think, I think practicing death and then I think also play. I think when we can be more playful yeah. and we can be a little bit more open to saying, you know what, guys, we're going to try a song today that none of you know, and it's probably not going to go well, and we're all going to survive and we're all going to be fine and nobody's going to hate each other at the end of it, right? Like, yeah. But the stakes are actually really low. And, and, you know, I've experienced this working in churches. I experienced this watching my dad be a preacher in a church. Mm-hmm. The stakes sometimes, right. the ways that people right. approach it. It's right. like, you know, you say something in the sermon. If the sermon's not great, then somebody's walking out the door telling you what a bad job you did. And it's like, <laughs> what, what are we doing here? Yeah. You know? like, yeah. like, we need to be able to to enter into our community spaces and say, yeah, let's try something. And it's like, we're regularly going to try new things. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they are not going to work. And we're all going to be okay. And what can we learn even when they don't work? I mean, I think about when I was much younger in acting school, and we had this director who said, you know, tonight, she would do this when we, when we did show, she said, tonight, I want you to make a choice that you know, for a fact will not work. And I want you to make it anyway. And we would go through and we would just make ridiculous choices. And Hmm. every single time I would find something and go, that didn't work, but I found something. Hmm. I realized that I was not bringing enough humor into this moment, or I realized that actually I needed to be a little bit more vulnerable or right. Like you, you find things in your failures. And if we treat failures, like they are the end of the story, rather than kind of the gateways that we pass through to get to where we're going, then then failure becomes scary. But if it's this something that's just a natural part of the cycles of learning and growth, then hooray for failure. How great. You failed. You know, like what a wonderful thing for you to do for the sake of our community and, and for the sake of getting to know God better. That's great. Failure as a gateway, not an end. Um, I love that you're I love that you brought that. You know, I was thinking back to someone I had on the pod, uh, Reverend Anna Mitchell Hall. 
perhaps Dr. Anna Mitchell, look up her name. She has some good work. Um, she writes in one of her books about recommending that churches, before they start a new ministry, like in that process, whoever's going to start the new ministry, ministry needs to write a eulogy for that new ministry. Isn't that fabulous? I love that. Yeah. And then I love that. something else I can imagine you would appreciate, um, I was thinking back just to some of my hospital chaplaincy work about how um, bringing more ritual can really kind of soften that um, that pain and that loss. So I, I can imagine even as you're um, doing that regular practice of death and resurrection, building space for ritual can really go a long way in helping ease that pain and, and transition. Absolutely. Because, you know, ritual is the art of transformation. Mm -hmm. It's it's the skeletal system of our lives. And if we are, if every time we enter into true ritual, we do it with the idea that we will be changed, that the world will be different on the other side of that. And so, like, to regularly engage in a practice that is specifically about changing and and not being the person that you were, just you, you start to realize what a what a wild and dynamic creature you are as well. Yeah. Well, this is this has been a fabulous conversation. Uh, I had so many other questions I was going to ask you, but the conversation just kind of flowed, and I hope hope you're okay with with how it, how it how it flowed. Oh, uh, last That's question good. here before we take a break. Um, you mentioned uh, acting school. Uh, mm-hmm. I was just talking with a friend and colleague here recently about um, kind of advice for pastors, something unorthodox, and he mentioned acting like churches or pastors should take acting classes. Would you agree? hundred percent. Okay. 100%. Why? Why? I have been wanting forever to teach a like acting for preachers class. Uh-huh. Well, because I mean, if you're looking at it from the larger perspective, like theater is all about telling a story and kind of guiding yeah. you through those. And I, in my mind, a, a solid ritual does the same thing. And so huh. doing that crossover of skill set plus learning how to act, you start to get a sense of, oh, when my body does this, it conveys this. Or when Mm. I use this language, it feels like this. Or Mm -hmm. um, even just things like pacing. I mean, knowing that you have to earn a pause. I mean, this was one of the big things we were taught when I was taking acting classes is, you know, you you can't just pause all the time. Or it doesn't mean anything, right? Like you have to to work up to it and you use your pauses effectively. But even basic things like that around just how do you express yourself? How do you come to, to... um, come to things with different intentions. I, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. 100%. All right. All right. Well, this has been great. Uh, again, the book is, uh, whether it's out or not will be a liturgy for all bodies. I encourage folks to check it out. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll come back with some closing questions. All right. We're back with Timothy Cole and, uh, really appreciate the conversation and, uh, Looking forward to checking out the book when it when it's here. Uh, I always uh, invite folks to take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're a pope for a day, what would that day look like? What do you want to do? That sort of thing. If I'm pope for a day, the first thing I do is I um, release all of the land back to the indigenous nations that they were stolen from. That's the first order of business. Mm-hmm. And then dismantling and selling off the Vatican and using that money to feed all of the people that could eat. It's a big day. It's a that. big day. It's a big day. I'll, I'll get the I'll get the the wheels. You just have to sign some decrees, right? And then they and then you can have like several days after that where they make sure. It yeah, sure. You're pope. You can. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Thank God. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Hmm. I would love to have a conversation with Laura Smith Haviland, hmm. who is um, one of my um, sort of indirect non-blood relatives that was part of the the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist movement, but was also a part of the Quaker Church for a little while hmm. and really just kind of did and said some amazing things and um, s- spoke up in some ways that really cost her some things. And I just, I would, I would, I would love to have a deeper connection with her. Awesome. Awesome. Um, uh, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? I think that history will remember us very similarly to the way that they remembered Rome wow. right before it fell. Wow. I think there's a lot of, uh, indulgence and exploitation and, um, and ultimately also a movement of people that I, that are turning back to the earth because mm-hmm. we don't really have a choice at this point. And I think that yeah. that's, I think those will be the big, the big um, opposing forces that people will remember. Yeah. Uh, what do you hope for the future of Christianity? Uh, I hope that Christianity becomes uh, a collective, a network rather than an institution. Hmm. Interesting. I'm writing that down here. Well, uh, share if you would, while I'm writing down my notes here where people can connect with you and, uh, find more about you. Yeah. You can connect with me through my website, Kimothy Cole, K I M M O T H Y C O L E.com. Um, and there's, Everything from ways to connect with me to do individual ritual work to have me come out and teach or preach um, or share. There's workshops posted there. I post everything about my performances. Um, you can read some of my writing as well. So that's really the the best place to connect with me. I do have a Patreon and some social media, but mostly um, <clears throat> I work through that website. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation. I encourage folks, folks to check out the book. Um, but uh, before we go, I always leave folks with a word of peace. May God's peace be with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.